The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, have you ever wondered if life is like actually really worth it? This life. Like, have you ever found yourself just in the pit of despair? We can talk about that. In fact, we, we have to talk about that. Um, this past week, just this past week, someone very close to me had someone very close to them take their own life. And then in a second instance, unrelated, up my family tree, over a couple branches, back down over here, same thing. Two years ago, this coming February, it was one of my best friends from high school. Um, three months after that, in 2020, it was a pastor I looked up to in, in St. Louis. Took his own life. I've sat with, with people from our church, Right? Some of you have articulated before, like, just, man, what's the point? Members from this church, past and present, have confessed at times suicidal thoughts. And listen, if that's you, like, please, don't leave here today without talking to somebody. Talk to me, one of the other pastors, Pastor Ben, who just read scripture, or just a friend that's here. We'd love to sit with you. We'd love to hear you, pray with you, help. We can talk about it. Like, we, we have to be able to talk about that stuff. You know, if you're here and, and you're, you're not a Christian, one of the questions that I really hope you're asking is, what's so great about Christianity? And maybe you're, you're here because hope is, is waning in your life, and you've, you've tried some other things, you've, you've, you've tried some, some other avenues, nothing's really working, and so maybe you're here because, like, I'm just going to give God a try today. And if that's you, there's no better day for you to be here than today, and there's no better place for you to be than right here and right now. The Apostle Peter writes to Christians who were dispersed and distressed and and persecuted. Christians who are in distress and despair, who are suffering. You know what he tells them? He has the nerve to tell them to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. (laughs) As Christians, we have hope. We do. That's what Paul wants to tell us in this passage in, in Romans 8 this morning. He wants us to know it's all worth it. All the suffering, all of it. And there's quite a bit that we could pile up in the middle of this room this morning. Paul is saying, hey, all of it is worth it. And Paul tells us this um, because he understands what it's like to live in this world. You know, Paul is is not some philosophical, romantic idealist. Paul was was not some insulated, ivory tower tower theologian writing books, okay? 
This is Paul we're talking about here. The same Paul who was imprisoned multiple times, beaten multiple times, often near death. He, He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. That doesn't sound fun. On frequent journeys, I was in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he says, on top of all that, I got the daily anxiety of dealing with all the churches I planted. (laughs) that's, That's the Paul who's writing here. He gets it. He knows that the doctrines that he's been laying down in Romans up to this point, that we are justified, that we are counted right before God by grace through faith, that there's no condemnation for us, that the Spirit now lives in us, that God is fulfilling his law through us, that he's killing sin in us, even the glorious truth that one day we'll be rescued from these bodies of death and eternal life will be given to our mortal bodies. He knows that we can know and hold all these things in our heads and even believe them in our hearts and still ask the question, what about right now? What about when a parent dies? Or a pet? What about when your child gets that diagnosis and now you're looking down the corridor of decades worth of implications? What about relational strife and broken relationships and miscarriages and hurricanes? What about when you have no idea what you're doing as a parent (laughs) or no idea how you're going to pay your bills? No idea how retirement's going to pan out. What about now? I mean, great, we got these gospel truths, but what about my right here, right now, suffering? Is it all worth it? Well, Paul's going to tell us this morning, it is. It's worth it. In fact, he's going to say, It's far more than worth it. Paul says in this text, suffering has got nothing on glory. Last week we were looking at verses 12 through 16 of Romans 8 and three identities that Paul was driving home that are true for us as believers. The last of which, remember this, was that you're a child, child of God. You've been adopted into his family, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we can cry out to him. He's invited us to relate to him using this term, Abba, like Daddy. Verse 16 says that this identity is so important for us to understand and internalize that one of the very reasons that God sent his Holy Spirit to live in us is so that the Spirit would testify to us and witness to us, reminding us and encouraging us, bolstering us in this truth that we really are his children. This really is who you are. You're a child of God if you belong to Christ. Well, now in verse 17, he tells us, because we are children, we're also heirs. Heirs. That's the first point for us this morning, that it's all worth it because we're heirs. This is part of what it means to be a child. 
You and I and everyone who has ever believed and belonged to Jesus are heirs. And we understand something about this heir language, right, from the world around us where we see, or maybe some of you even have been, uh, benefactors, right, of an inheritance from a parent or, or something like that. Paul says, as children of God, we are heirs. And he sharpens that point, actually, by saying, look at it, look at it closely in, in verse 17. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, remember, Paul, in this section of Romans, He's seeking to strengthen the assurance that we have as believers. That's the context of Romans 8 that we don't want to lose. It started back in Romans 5, right? 6 and 7 were a little bit of like a parenthesis sort of thing almost. And then he picks up the themes from chapter 5 again here in chapter 8. And the context is to strengthen us in our assurance of salvation, that we really do belong to Jesus. And so when he says, if you're a child, then you're an heir, this isn't like a computer programming if and then statement where you might not hit the if and, and you know, get out of, the end, out of the then. He's saying, if this is true of you, and I'm telling you it is, then this is also true of you. Trace it out, he's saying. You've been adopted. You're a child of God. And since you're a child, you too are an heir. An heir. An heir, firstly, of God, all right? Meaning, you're a benefactor of his, sure. But it also means part of your inheritance is God himself. You get him. It's the ultimate fulfillment of Asaph's prayer in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As an heir of God, your inheritance isn't merely your salvation. Part of your inheritance is God himself. You are his and he's, he's yours. And listen, that's, that's true now. But also, you're going to spend eternity exploring the vastness, the infinite vastness of this truth. You're going to spend eternity exploring the infinite vastness of his love for you and your union with him. The supreme benefit of being a child of God is having God as your God. The Lord is my portion, the author of Lamentations says. And therefore, I will hope in him. And so because we are children, we are heirs. We are heirs of God. And then secondly, Paul writes that we are heirs, fellow heirs, with Christ. You see that? We are heirs with Christ. And he elaborates that as heirs with Christ, we are to anticipate and expect both suffering and glory. You see that in the text? Verse 17 Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering and then glory. That was the order appointed for Christ himself. And therefore, suffering and then glory is the order appointed for those, those of us who are united with him. Those who are heirs with him. 
And these, these two themes, right, suffering and, and, and glory, are really the themes for the rest of, of Romans 8. These two themes, they're in, inseparable from, from one another, especially throughout the Bible, since suffering is the way to glory. Peter says it this way, he says, after you've suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering and then glory. See, becoming a Christian doesn't rid us of suffering. I wish it did. But it doesn't. Not at all. Instead, it puts our suffering in perspective. And that's what Paul wants to do this morning. He wants to put all of our suffering in perspective. Which is why the second thing that he tells us in this text is that it's all worth it because glory far exceeds suffering. Glory far exceeds suffering. Remember, as heirs with Christ, we should anticipate and expect both. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you, Peter says. Count all joys when you meet trials of various kinds, James says. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus told us, remember? And so we should anticipate suffering, even expect suffering. But as heirs, we're also to anticipate and expect glory. And Paul wants us to, to kind of move on from, from saying that the two are just inseparable. They are inseparable. Suffering and glory are inseparable. He wants us to move on from saying they're inseparable. Now he tells us that there, there's also this great disproportion between the two. So they're inseparable, but they're in great disproportion to one another. Look at verse 18. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying, because we are heirs, our present sufferings, they're not even worthy to be compared with what awaits us in heaven. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, listen, this isn't Paul minimizing your suffering. The Bible never minimizes suffering. Nowhere in here have I found any verse or passage that says, hey, suck it up. Life's hard for everybody. It's not in there. I haven't found it yet. No, the Bible acknowledges suffering for what it truly is, and it truly is painful, isn't it? Here's what that means for us as Christians. We don't have to minimize suffering either. Not in ourselves not in each other. We don't have to offer platitudes to ourselves or each other. You know, stuff like, well, it was just their time. Um, life has to go on. Or, you know, this will pass. It'll all be okay. Sometimes it's not Okay. Some things don't get better 
in this life. Time doesn't heal all. That's why there's fresh flowers on 40-year-old gravestones. It's painful to live in this world. Some of you are maybe young enough to, to be a little bit sheltered from that in some ways. But age isn't the discriminator here, is it? But if that's you, maybe ask some with gray hairs in this room, they'll tell you. Ask someone who's, who's buried their mom, they'll tell you. When that song comes on the radio again that reminds you of her, they'll tell you. Ask someone who's buried a friend, we'll tell you. It sucks, it's painful. And the question is, like, what are we going to do with all these accumulated pains from our life? What are we going to do with them? The accumulated suffering and, the, and pain and disappointment and distress, like a vacation isn't going to solve it. Making more money, buying more toys, trying to just have more fun, it doesn't solve it. Medicating it doesn't solve it. What are we to do with it? Well, Paul tells us. He says, take all of your present sufferings, all of them, and and, and put them on one side of a scale. You know, like a scales? He says, take all that accumulated sorrow, all that accumulated pain, put it on one side of the scale, and watch that thing slam down to the tabletop. They're heavy. It's weighty. They're real. But now he says, place on the other side of that scale the glory that is to be revealed to us. The, the, the glory that you and I as believers, as, as children, as, as heirs are to anticipate and expect. He says, put that on the other side of the scale and wham! <laughs> It slams down to the table, almost busts the scale. It's like a Mack truck on one side and a feather on the other. And listen, the the sufferings didn't all of a sudden get lighter, did they? They didn't get any lighter. No, they only become light in comparison to the weight of glory. That's what Paul tells us. All that is ours, all that we stand to inherit as heirs with Christ dominates and triumphs in comparison to the suffering of the present time. I love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How can he say that? How can he call your present sufferings light and momentary? Only because he's done the comparison. Only because he's done the comparison and concluded sufferings got nothing on glory. And just to get real practical for a minute, did you notice in Romans 8.18 where Paul says, For I consider, I've considered it, Paul says. I've done the math. I've run the theological numbers. 
I've counted and computed both sufferings and glory. See, typically for us, we, we get stuck kind of looking at one side of the scale, don't we? The suffering side of the scale. And when we do that, it feels completely overwhelming. So Paul says, you're going to have to consider. It's what I do, he says. Consider. Reflect on. Meditate on. Fix your eyes upon the other side of the scale. The glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's actually what he goes on to do then in verses 19 through 22 of the text. You see the little word for at the beginning of verse 19? For. Paul's not making a new argument here. He's building off what he just said. For or because, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's a lot going on there, right? Uh, There's a lot that could be said from these verses, but let's make sure that we understand what Paul is saying in these verses. He he said in verse 17, back up at the top, follow his argument. In verse 17, he said, because we are children, we are also heirs. And then in verse 18, because we are heirs, our present sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared to what awaits us. And now he says in verse 19, what's coming our way? What's coming our way is so good that creation itself is waiting for it with eager longing. So Paul's not changing the subject here. The subject, the topic, is still our inheritance with Christ. And our inheritance with Christ, the glory that is to be revealed to us and even through us, he calls it the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. And so God is going to reveal something to us and through us. And creation itself, Paul says, is waiting eagerly for it. Waiting longingly for it. Not with anxiety, but with hope-filled anticipation. Look at verse 22. He says the, the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth. Right? Childbirth pains aren't merely anxious pains. They're expectant pains. Joyful, hopeful, anticipatory pains. I know I'm a guy talking about this now, right? A little bit. I, I get it. Right? I've, been in the, I've been in the room, all right? I've got three daughters. I've been in the room. I've seen three babies birthed into this world. I've seen my, my wife deliver babies, praising God for epidurals, just saying, right? But the, the pain, like it's, it's a still a struggle and all that sort of stuff, right? And if you've never been in that room before, man, when that baby first makes its entrance into the world, there's, I mean, there's nothing like it. It's, it's so incredible. So incredible. 
And so the imagery, I mean, you're just blown away in that moment, right? So the imagery that we should have here as we read this text isn't creation like wasting away. Whining and complaining, man, it's getting worse and getting worse. We just get Jesus to come back already. But instead, the imagery that we have here from Paul is creation craning her neck, leaning in, looking out over the horizon, watching, waiting, longing with eager and vivid anticipation. The, the J.B. Phillips translation, which was a, a paraphrase before the message was cool. The, the J.B. Phillips translation captures verse 19 this way, saying the whole creation is on tiptoe. Tiptoe. To see the wonderful side of the sons of God coming into their own. In other words, Paul is telling us creation can hardly wait for what's coming. Now, why? I mean, this is a strange argument, isn't it? Why does Paul argue in this way? Well, verse 20 tells us. He tells us why creation can hardly wait for what's coming. For or because, verse 20, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, pause it right there and let's ask some theological questions that matter, all right? When was creation subjected to futility? When? When did that happen? Well, all the way back in Genesis 3. What did God say to Adam back in the garden after he sinned? He said, because you listened to your wife instead of me. Hmm? Because you ate of the tree, which I told you not to. Cursed is the ground because of you. That's when creation was subjected to futility. And who did the subjecting? We got the when. What about the who? Who did this? Who did the subject? It was God himself. He's the one that issued the curse. Creation didn't subject herself to futility, not willingly, Paul says in Romans 8.20. No, creation was unwillingly subjected to futility by God as the result of the willful sin of man. Now, why? We got the when, we got the who, why? Well, we're told in the Bible is as a consequence for sin, that's why. That's what we're told in Genesis 3. It's almost like creation was an innocent bystander here, collateral damage. When man sinned, God gave us, what, what, what God gave us to rule over and exercise dominion over was turned over instead to futility. As one commentator put it, when we fell, paradise fell with us. Here's what that means. <laughs> Creation's not what it's meant to be. It's not as it should be. And we kind of get that and don't get that at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, we, we get it when we see things like hurricanes or wildfires or tornadoes or tsunamis or droughts or water shortages or extinctions of species, when, when we hear of global warming or other environmental ecological issues, we get it. But we also don't get it when we drive over to Colorado and see the Rocky Mountains 
Or, or we drive to Florida and watch a sunrise come up over the ocean. Or if we just drive through rural Nebraska this time of year, over the rolling hills and see the beautiful, amazing fall colors. When you and I are struck by the beauty and the grandeur of nature, the beauty and the grandeur of creation, you know what song we ought to be hearing in our heads? 1974, I'm talking 92.9 Eagle stuff, right? 1974, Bachman Turner Overdrive, you ain't seen nothing yet. And God's people, they've, they've known about this for centuries throughout the Bible. Haven't they? I mean, tur- let's turn. Isaiah 65 in your Bible to the left. Isaiah 65. This isn't going to be on the screen. You're going to have to find it for yourself. Isaiah 65 is page 624 in the church Bibles. God's people have known about this for centuries. They've been, we've been looking forward to it as God's people for centuries, all the way back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, page 624. You're used to hearing this kind of talk from Revelation 21. But all the way back in the Old Testament, they were waiting for it too. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. That sounds good when we're suffering. Instead, be be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her peoples to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. And it gets a little even more poetic here. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. He's talking about the fact that we're going to live, I think, forever is the point of that. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the days, for like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long to enjoy the work of their hands. That's the curse reversed right there, if I've ever heard it. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, verse 23, or bear bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion eats straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Friends, what a glorious picture of our promised future reality. That's what creation is waiting for. That's what creation 
is longing for. Flip back to Romans 8 now. This is why Paul says creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God because when the end comes, all that Isaiah 65 stuff is going down. Subjection to futility was not the ultimate plan. A cursed ground was not the end game. No, verses 20 and 21 tell us that God subjected creation to futility in hope. You see that? The subjection was not ultimate. Hope is ultimate. The promised hope that, verse 21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What a line! Here's what Paul's saying. He says, when, when Christ returns at the end of the age, when our redemption is fully and finally complete, creation will be fully and finally redeemed as well. Perfected. Joyful. Even celebrating and worshiping. See, Paul personifies creation here. As one waiting with eager, long, he can't wait. It's going to be so amazing, right? And he's not the first one to do it. The psalmists do it too. Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. They're going to sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Or Psalm 98, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and people with equity. Man, I don't know about you, I can't wait to see trees and hills sing and rivers clap their hands and the fields exult and the earth rejoice. <laughs> However literal or figurative that is, right? I don't know. It's going to happen. It's going to be awesome. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, its bondage to decay and destruction, and obtain instead the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul is saying creation is going to share in the glory that will be ours. And reciprocally, we're going to share in the glory of a completely renewed creation. In fact, we're heirs of it. In Hebrews 1, verse 2, we're told that God has appointed Jesus as heir of what? Do you know what it says? All things. God has appointed Jesus as heir of all things. And then Romans eight seventeen. remember the first point? We're told that you and I are fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of what? All things. Including a radically renewed and restored creation. Complete with singing trees and clapping rivers. Paul says, this is all yours. Put it on the scale. 
put it on the scale. Is this life really worth it? Put it on the scale, Paul says. Suffering's got nothing on glory. Nothing. And when you lose track of that, which happens from time to time as a Christian, doesn't it? When you lose track of that, when another wave of suffering comes and seeks to completely overwhelm you, to cause you to despair, consider this, Paul says. Consider it. Suffering's got nothing on glory. Let's pray. Father, Father, we know that everyone and, and, and everything around us seeks to offer us escape from our sufferings. But only you, only you offer us an eternal hope infinitely greater than our sufferings. And so help us today. Help us today to, to fix our eyes upon our glorious inheritance. Give us strength to endure. Help us even to rejoice in our sufferings, as Romans 5 says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The kind of hope that doesn't put us to shame for hoping, because your love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so, Father, would we, we do the comparison this morning? Would we consider and conclude in our hearts in such a way that actually makes a difference in our lives that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us? And because of our union with Christ and our inheritance with Christ, suffering's got nothing on glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.